1: ECO Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers, working at the studios
0: of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana,
2: and financially supported by listeners like you.
1: Hello, and welcome to ECO Report. For WFHB, I'm Cynthia Roberts. And now for today's special Thanksgiving environmental news brief.
2: From WFHB, This is your special Thanksgiving environmental news brief for Thursday, November 25th. I'm Nathaniel Winesapple. The first Thanksgiving occurred in 1621 and marked a period of peace between the recently arrived Pilgrim Colony and the native Wampanoag Tribe. This first feast was about giving thanks for a successful harvest and the survival of the colony over a rather difficult first year in the New World. Modern Thanksgiving brings to mind foods such as mac and cheese, mashed potatoes, and turkey. In 1621, the environment and access to food was much different than it was today. Researchers have been able to determine that the main course of the first Thanksgiving was deer, but with side dishes of fish and shellfish. There were no potatoes at the time, so that was certainly not on the menu. Similarly, pumpkin pie would have been impossible as the colony did not have butter, wheat flour, or an oven. Getting the food needed to have a modern Thanksgiving feast at the time of the pilgrims would have been impossible. The White House has announced that both of the turkeys selected for the annual presidential pardon came from Jasper, Indiana. The state is one of the largest turkey producers, with around 20 million Indiana turkeys being available to Americans each year. The pardoned turkeys will be allowed to live peacefully for the rest of their lives at a local children's farm near Washington, D.C. The presidential pardon took place on November 19th. The University of California has recently recommended multiple ways that people can be more environmentally sustainable during Thanksgiving. For example, when traveling to friends and family, it is better to use public transportation or to carpool with others. When buying the food for the feast, it is best to use local and in-season produce. Reusable containers should be used when storing food to reduce the amount of plastic used, and no-baked desserts can help reduce the energy consumption that comes from the use of an oven. These are just numerous ways to have an environmentally friendly Thanksgiving. And that's all for your environmental news brief. Hope you have a great Thanksgiving. For WFHB, I'm Nathaniel Wines Apple.
1: Nathaniel Weinzappel, talks about the climate change organization Sunrise Movement in Bloomington. That's coming up later in the program. And now for your headline stories. A recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change alerted the world of impending catastrophic climate crisis if the world doesn't stop extracting, producing, and burning fossil fuels. Also, the UN's World Meteorological Organization announced that climate crisis-fueled natural disasters have increased five-fold over the last four decades. Despite these dire warnings, the Biden administration is pursuing a massive expansion of offshore oil drilling in the Gulf of Mexico. It plans to lease 78 million acres of the Gulf for fossil fuel extraction. Biden administration officials are arguing that the intergovernmental panel warning, quote, does not present sufficient cause, end quote, to reconsider the drilling plan. At the same time, Biden has been touring climate crisis devastated areas of the U.S., warning that the climate crisis is a, quote, code red, end quote, emergency for the planet. Several environmental and Gulf organizations have now initiated a lawsuit against the administration with the aid from the nonprofit public interest law firm, Earth Justice, to end the Gulf lease sale. They argue that the environmental analysis underlying the lease sale is based on outmoded and arbitrary science, thereby violating federal law. That analysis was performed years ago before recent science more closely linked human activity and the extreme effects of climate crisis. In July, 2020, the Trump administration wrecked the National Environmental Policy Act or NEPA. The act often called the People's Environmental Law used to give affected communities the ability to determine which industrial projects get built in their neighborhoods. Trump gutted the law by providing exemptions to public review for numerous projects, limiting public input, and permitting federal agencies to issue permits without considering long-term climate impacts. Today, it's up to the Biden administration's council on environmental quality to reverse Trump's harmful changes. That reversal will enable communities threatened by environmental injustice to continue using the law as a legal recourse to fight for clean air and water and land free of contaminants and pollution. As the act stands with Trump's changes, it serves the interests of polluting industries over the health and well being of communities. With Trump's changes, the law allows polluting industries to conduct their own environmental reviews and diminishes the possibility of considering alternative options to particular projects. It prevents communities from taking part in decisions about projects proposed for their backyards. Communities of color are leading the fight against polluting industries and NEPA can return to serving as a legal tool that empowers them to fight for the clean environment they have a right to. <laughs> the stop. Line 3 Coalition officially launched a new campaign aimed at helping water protectors who oppose the massive tar sands pipeline and who are facing criminal charges in Minnesota. The campaign is calling for the charges to be dropped. Hundreds of water protectors are facing criminal charges for standing in defense of the water, climate, and treaty rights of the Anishinaabe people. Water protectors and their supporters are demanding that Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison and Governor Tim Walz work with county prosecutors to drop the charges against those who have resisted the pipeline. Despite treaty rights protected by the U.S. Constitution and affirmed by the U.S. Supreme Court, indigenous water protectors have been arrested for allegedly trespassing while in ceremony on land that federal law states they have a right to hunt, fish, and perform ceremonies on. The police, funded by $2.4 million from Enbridge, the company that constructed the pipeline, have responded to the peaceful Stop Line 3 movement with surveillance, harassment, and physical torture, all of which violate the company's agreement not to engage in counterinsurgency tactics. Some water protectors are facing felony charges. Those charges are designed to deter water protectors from taking action, thus impinging on their right to free speech. Rodents are a pervasive problem in California vineyards. The conventional way to control them is to use rodenticides to kill them, but those pesticides kill birds and other animals that ingest the poisoned rodents. California vintners are trying something new to obviate this problem, barn owls. As an experiment, biology graduate students at Humboldt State University in California have installed about 300 barn owl nest boxes in various vineyards and are documenting the owl's impact on deterring and eating pests as an alternative to rodenticide use. Four-fifths of the 75 wineries the researchers surveyed in Napa County now use barn owl nest boxes and note a difference in the rodent populations. Barn owls have a four month hunting season during which they spend about one third of their time hunting in the grape fields. A family of barn owls can eat as many as a thousand rodents during the nesting season. That's 3,400 rodents for dinner in a given year. So far, the grad students have found that the owls are reducing the number of gophers, but not mice. The owls' impacts on voles are inconclusive so far. For centuries, farmers have used owls and other raptors to hunt rodents, but modern toxic chemical rodenticides have overtaken this practice. Today, barn owl nesting boxes are turning up in farm fields around the US, Malaysia, Kenya, and. Israel to put the birds to work. In a move designed to bolster Beijing's climate credentials, President Xi Jinping of China said Tuesday that his country would stop building coal-burning power plants overseas, ending its support for construction projects that rely on the world's dirtiest fossil fuel. China will accelerate support for other developing countries in developing green and low carbon energy and will not build new coal fired power projects abroad, she said in a pre recorded remark to the United Nations General Assembly. Within its own borders, China produces the largest share of global emissions of greenhouse gases. It is by far the biggest producer of coal domestically and the largest financier of coal fired power plants abroad, with an enormous 40 gigawatts of coal power planned by some estimates. In response to Xi's pledge, the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, said that, quote, accelerating the global phase-out of coal is the single most important step to keep the 1.5-degree goal of the Paris Agreement within reach, end quote. Gutierrez has called for a moratorium on new coal-burning power plants in practically every global speech he has made on climate change, his signature issue. And here we have a, a question and answer dialogue. Has the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere ever been higher than it is now? In the last few million years, longer than humans have been around, no. We are currently about 40 percent higher than it has been in the entire time that humans have walked the earth. What was the climate during the first billion years of our planet? The earth's first billion years were very different from the conditions today. The sun was cooler then, but the planet was generally warmer. That's because there were a lot of greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and methane in the atmosphere. Also, the atmosphere back then contained very little oxygen. Has the climate been hotter than other times because of the carbon dioxide? Many millions of years. For example, the Cretaceous is a geological period that lasted from about 145 to 66 million years ago. The carbon dioxide levels were about three to five times today's levels. The Cretaceous was a period with a warm climate No ice at the poles, resulting in sea levels up to over 500 feet above today's oceans. Plants thrived and the high CO2 levels were caused by decay of plant life. Dinosaurs dominated on Earth. The world was ice-free and forests extended to the poles. During this time, new groups of mammals and birds appeared. During the early Cretaceous, Flowering plants appeared and began to rapidly diversify, becoming the dominant group of plants across the Earth by the end of the Cretaceous, coincident with the decline and extinction of previously widespread plant groups. The Cretaceous ended with the asteroid that caused the Cretaceous-Paleogene extinction event a large mass extinction in which many groups including non-avian dinosaurs and large marine reptiles died out what event caused a cooling leading to today's climate the india plate crashed into the asian plate around 40 million years ago causing the formation of the himalayas and the beginning of the monsoon seasons the rains con- t- contacted rocks of the Himalayas resulting in the absorption of CO2. CO2 levels went from over 1000 ppm to the 180 to 280 range that lasted until humans began putting large amounts into the atmosphere. Some of the climate change deniers argued that the records kept since 1880 were too brief to prove climate change. Would the climate over the last 500 million years be sufficient proof of the effect of carbon dioxide on climate? During Mozambique civil war from 1977 to 1992, around 90% of the elephants in what is now the Gorongosa National Park were poached for ivory to finance the conflict. The widespread slaughter led to rapid evolution in the span of one generation. Before the conflict, less than a fifth of female elephants were born without tusks. Afterwards, half of the female elephants in the area were tuskless. Now, a study published in Science Friday has revealed some of the genetics behind this astonishing change. An elephant's tusks are essentially a pair of large teeth and typically both female and male elephants are born with them. The researchers found that tuskless elephants were five times more likely to survive during the fighting because they were tuskless. To figure out what was going on, the researchers sequenced the genomes of 11 females without tusks and seven with tusks, looking for differences. They identified genes that caused the selectivity toward tuskless elephants. They worked out how the elephant population changed so quickly. The belief is, now the war is over, that there will be a gradual reversal resulting in more animals with tusks. On October 27th, environmental and human rights lawyer Steven Donziger, whose case we reported on before, turned himself into a federal prison in Danbury, Connecticut to begin serving a six-month sentence for six counts of criminal contempt of court for refusing to turn over his laptop and other electronic devices to the giant oil company Chevron. He argued that doing so would jeopardize the client's privacy. Donzinger has already spent over 800 days in home detention where he was forced to wear an electronic ankle shackle that monitored and restricted his movements. In suing Chevron, Donziger won a $9.5 billion lawsuit on behalf of 30,000 indigenous people in Ecuador. For years, Chevron dumped carcinogenic waste from its oil extraction operations in the Ecuadorian rainforest, killing thousands of people and ruining their land and water. Chevron refused to pay to clean up the wreckage, despite losing the court case and instead began a lengthy vendetta vendetta against Dansinger. Dansinger said the intention of the vendetta was to intimidate climate justice activists and prevent them from going after corporate polluters. And now for our feature WFB reporter, Nathaniel Leinzeppel reports on the Climate Change Organization Sunrise Movement in Bloomington.
2: What you just listened to is from a recent protest from the nationwide climate change organization called the Sunrise Movement. Launched in 2017, the Sunrise Movement was founded to, quote, shift the Overton window on climate policy, unquote, and promote strong environmental policies, such as the Green New Deal. The movement organizes multiple protests for this cause and has many hubs throughout the country, including in Bloomington, Indiana. Sunrise Bloomington member Allison Aldi, a student at Indiana University studying environmental health, recently spoke with WFHB to help better explain what the Sunrise Movement is and how the Bloomington Movement differs.
0: The Sunrise Movement is a nationwide movement led by climate activists, and our goals are to promote sustainability and climate justice, um, specifically for our Bloomington hub, We have the goal right now to encourage IU to disclose how much they have invested in fossil fuels, to divest, and then to reinvest into sustainable organizations.
2: As Allison stated, Sunrise Bloomington seeks to have Indiana University, quote, disclose, divest, and reinvest, unquote. And Allison provides an understanding of what this means.
0: Indiana University is a public institution. Where their investments are is not public information. So, our first demand is to disclose. So, we want Indiana University to disclose how much money they have invested in fossil fuels. Once we've reached that goal, our next goal is to demand that Indiana University divest from any fossil fuel industries. And then, with that money that they have divested, We want them to reinvest into sustainable companies and sustainable organizations rather than organizations that are causing the destruction of our planet.
2: Over the past few years, Sunrise Bloomington and other organizations have sought to have meetings with the India University Foundation to help further their cause. Allison explained what purpose the meetings hold in the overall goals of Sunrise Bloomington.
0: With our meetings, we are hoping to meet with the IU Foundation, and by we, I don't just mean the Sunrise Movement Bloomington Hub. I mean the entire community, the IU community, um, the Bloomington community, the Indiana community. Um, We want to have an open dialogue with IU Foundation to make sure that the money that we pay with our tuition is going to sustainable organizations rather than to fossil fuel industries. And we want that conversation to be an open and public conversation.
2: Back in October, the Indian University Foundation and Sunrise Bloomington had actually organized a face-to-face meeting to discuss these goals. However, the meeting was canceled by the IU Foundation due to Sunrise's call for the meeting to be both public and for the community to participate. Sunrise was motivated by the need for transparency, with IU hoping for a more private conversation. Despite the setback, Allison is hopeful for a future meeting.
0: I think that Indiana University Foundation, based off uh, what they're saying publicly about their goals to sustainability, I think that they are taking the climate crisis seriously and the next step to prove to us that they are taking the climate crisis seriously is to divest from fossil fuels.
2: Early this year, Indian University named Pamela Witten as the 19th president of the university. After years of unsuccessful calls for the university to divest from fossil fuels, Sunrise Bloomington is optimistic that the change in leadership will finally bring them the opportunity they were looking for.
0: You know, I'm really hopeful. Um, President Pamela Whitman, she recently made a statement about um, Indiana University's promise to sustainability, mentioning some things, including IUPUI and how we rank with sustainability worldwide. And, like I kind of mentioned earlier, I think that the next step to really fulfilling that promise to sustainability and to climate justice is to divest from fossil fuels. So, I personally feel like Indiana University wants to do this.
2: While Sunrise Bloomington may seem extremely critical of Indiana University, Allison explains that this is not the case and that their concerns come from a place of appreciation for the university as a whole.
0: I am really proud to be a Hoosier. I myself am a student at Indiana University studying environmental health. And I'm really proud to be a part of this educational institution. Um, But I do really encourage that Indiana University disclose if they want to stick to their promise of sustainability, the best way to do that is to divest from fossil fuels. Nothing can go wrong by divesting from fossil fuels. And in fact, not divesting is going to have a bigger impact on the lives of not only Hoosiers, but the rest of the world.
2: If any listener supports Sunrise Bloomington, or wants to support, Allison states that
0: you can find us on Instagram at sunrisebtown Town, on Twitter at sunrisebtown Town, and on Facebook at SunriseBloomington.
2: For WFHB, I'm Nathanael Wine
1: Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at EcoReport, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334 4003 and on the web at mpi-solarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's news brief and feature were produced by WFHB reporter Nathaniel Weinschel. David Lyman assembled the script and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Cynthia Roberts. Happy Thanksgiving to all of our WFHB listeners. Please stay warm and safe on this special holiday. And this is Eco Report.
2: You've been listening to the Eco Report,
0: a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB
2: in Bloomington, Indiana
1: available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org.
2: Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source
0: for South Central Indiana,
2: bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear.
1: Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas
2: directly to the Eco Report staff.
1: The email address is
2: earth@ at
0: WFHB.org.
1: That's Earth at WFHB.org.